Hello and welcome to this week's Hong Kong Heritage. George Washington Farley Heard came from an American trading dynasty. One of several businessmen brothers, George traveled out from the United States to China in 1859 to join his uncle's trading house, Augustine Heard and Co. George Washington Heard would also become an attaché to the American legation and in June 1859 witnessed a key battle of the Second Opium War. He was just 22 years old. All the eight forts opened their fire at nearly the same time, and they all seemed to direct their fire on the Admiral's ship, which they distinguished by a square blue flag. The execution by the heavy guns of the forts was terrible. The men were twice swept away from their quarters on board the plover, and in less than an hour she only had three men left. The Admiral transferred his flag on board the Opossum, and she was terribly shot. By July 1860, George Washington Heard had been promoted to Secretary of Legation. He would see the Western Allies' preparations for the return battle that took place in August 1860. At least one of his letters home was borrowed to be copied by the American minister and sent to the then US president as an official report. It was the era when everything was handwritten, so letters home, business letters, and also in the case of George Washington Heard, he wrote journals that have been kept in an extensive archive. Gillian Bickley is an author and editor and a first vice president of the Royal Asiatic Society Hong Kong. With the assistance of Chris Duggan, who transcribed George Washington Heard's journals, Gillian presents a young, empathetic observer of China who dies a long way from home at just 38. I came across George Washington Farley Heard by a very indirect route. My husband was speaking to somebody at lunch at a Royal Commonwealth Society event and the person he was speaking to happened to know somebody who had some research that he wanted done and that research was into the Heard family. The Heard family is well known as an important American firm in Hong Kong in the early part of the 19th century and I found, or rather I refound, that there was an enormous resource in the Baker Library of Harvard Business School available to researchers on microfilm in the USA. So I was accepted as a person to work on this research and the first task was to have access to the materials and eventually I found these very interesting journals by George Washington Farley Heard which deal with the time when he was first an attaché to the American legation on its way to Beijing in 1859 to ratify the Treaty of Tianjin and later when he was appointed promoted Secretary of Legation. This happened because previously it was the brother of the American minister who was the secretary but he resigned and then the place was open for George, who apparently was a very charming person. His brother, after his death, said that George had a very lovable disposition and he never met anybody who didn't speak well of him. So obviously the 22-year-old George Heard, on shipboard at the same time as the American minister, made a very favorable impression. 
Now, um, George Washington Heard is the subject of your book, Through American Eyes, the journals of George Washington Farley Heard. So his journals have been edited by you. You give a preface to set the scene of who George was and in what time period he was in China. And of course, he was part of the Heard family. They had massive business interests, both in mainland China and uh, also in Hong Kong. They did indeed. They're very, very important. And they were also important in the histories of both Jardine Matheson and Swire. So during the First Opium War, British firms weren't allowed to deal directly with China, but American firms could. And so the herds acted for Jardine Matheson, thereby keeping their business alive during that period. And later, in 1861, they became Swire's agent, thereby introducing them to that trade. Unfortunately, herds went bankrupt, and so the company no longer exists. But we may think that perhaps they survive through the continuing flourishing of those two firms, Jardines and Swires. And that would be a really nice thing to think because it was so very important. Well, I think, you know, as we see in these journals, this young man, he unfortunately dies in his late 30s from dropsy. Not unusual in those days to be dying young. But at the same time, what always astonishes me about these kinds of stories of these lives is that the fact that they are achieving so many things at such a young age. I mean, he's, he's off to China at the age of 22. He's already been educated and they've got massive responsibility. He would later become secretary of legation, but he's already toing and froing. There's a lot of ship stories in, in, in these journals. And uh, he and his brother, they would decide what was shipping in, what was shipping out of China. So that's a lot of decision-making, a lot of responsibility at that time. Yes, yeah, so they were shipping into China, opium, cotton and rice and from China, teas and silks to Europe and the U USA. So there's a huge amount of documentation of all that trade. So anybody who wants to work on that, many people, uh, teams of people could work on that uh, and find something really, really interesting for the future. Well, this is the thing, isn't it, Gillian, that when you are looking at, um, you've picked on George Washington Heard and his microfiched memoirs, but at the same time, you know, you, you, there's an entire archive Indeed. waiting for people to, to pick over. But in terms of this young man, we, we see him on the front here. Yes, he, look, he looks very charming and very proud. And actually, it's a miniature. It was like, auctioned in the USA some years ago and I was able to get the photo from the auction house. Yes, he looks at us out of the, the front of your book through American eyes. And, um, and, uh, but we actually get to see China through American eyes in terms of what I found interesting is, is the everyday accounts that you've provided here. And this involved transcribing from microfiche his sort of curly handwriting. He also did little illustrations in his writing. Yes, I was very delighted to find those illustrations. The original material is quite blurred. It's about the third copy, so the original is faded, old, crumbly. It's been microfilmed, then a copy of the microfilm, then perhaps a hard copy from the microfilm, so all those different levels of change. So would you have been writing with a quill and ink at that time? I've got no idea. <laughs> I've got no idea what he would have been writing with. <laughs> um, but what I like is, so? well, I, I don't know, but I mean, it looks like, found, I mean, they, they usually were writing with lovely ink. They, they might have uh, 
pens rather than quills, I'd have thought by I then. I don't know when they invented the water. I shall look up <laughs> after the trigger and find out when the fountain pen yeah, was invented. Later parts of the archive are typed. So people who are not made of such stern <laughs> stuff, they can go to the more modern parts and look at the... T and I should actually pay tribute to the lady who helped me to do uh, the transcription, um, Mrs. Chris Duggan. What you provide here is a private account, but it also shows such public events, not only what the herds were doing in China, but also the battles. For me, the actual opium war becomes something that is very real. Because it's that much time ago, I, I find sometimes that it, it's assigned to paper, it's in history books. Yes. And here he's really talking about the effects of cannon fire, the effects of hundreds of men being mowed down as they try yeah. to enter a port and the amount who drown because they get out of their boats too early. Yeah. And they had to get out of the boats then because the boats couldn't go any further. But they got out of their boats without thinking and some of them couldn't swim. So they ended up in water and they had to wade and then they had stakes and then there was another ditch and then there was mud and people were firing on them all the time. And George was present when this was happening. So this is the Battle of the Peho, and what year is that? 1859. It's the summer of 1859. No movement was made till 2.30 on either side, when the plover, followed by the kestrel and the cormorant, steamed up by the first barrier to the second and commenced pulling up the stakes. One had already been pulled out, and the second one loosened, when at 2.40 p.m. the middle fort, number three, fired a heavy gun at the plover. The fire was returned by the cormorant, and the cannonading became general throughout the forces on both sides. The forts discharged their guns almost as rapidly as the English and did great execution. All the eight forts opened their fire at nearly the same time, and they all seemed to direct their fire on the admiral's ship, which they distinguished by a square blue flag. The execution by the heavy guns of the forts was terrible. The men were twice swept away from their quarters on board the plover, and in less than an hour she only had three men left. The admiral transferred his flag on board the opossum, and she was terribly shot. Six men killed outright, and many more severely wounded. He then went on board the comrade, where he remained till night. He himself was severely wounded in the beginning of the action, but like a gallant fellow as he is, refused to be carried below, but remained on deck among his men. The first shot fired from the forts took the head off the captain of the plover. Rayson, his name was, and a fine young sailor as I ever saw. He came on board the Toewan the day previous, when we were aground to offer assistance in the name of the Admiral. The Toewan then towed up the boats of the English and anchored herself between the Nasagari and the Coromandel, both of whom were firing very rapidly. The Toewan remained there three quarters of an hour, and while in that position, the Commodore went to pay a visit to the Admiral to offer his sympathy to a wounded brother officer, who was severely wounded and who was suffering a mortifying defeat. He pulled up in the middle of one of the hottest fires that ever came from the forts, and when nearly alongside of the cormorant, the ship on which the admiral was at the time, a shot struck his boat, knocking the stern sheets out of it, 
throwing the Commodore and Lieutenant Trenchard out of their seats and killing the coxswain. They paddled up to the cormorant on the debris of the boat and found the Admiral lying on the deck, and heads, arms, and legs lying round in every direction, and the decks streaming with blood. So do you think that George is, is tagging along out of curiosity a little bit? That was a sense that I got, you know, you've got all these people that are, are soldiers and sailors going into this carnage and, and this gunfire, and he's really seeing the effects. The one boat he describes where a lieutenant is brought up dead, um, you've got severed limbs and heads and blood across the deck. I mean, he doesn't save us because he's writing it as a private account. I mean, that's also an interesting point. When you're writing a journal in that era, is that for you or is that to be read by others? Well, there's so many points there, Anne-Marie, I don't know which, which, which to address first. Um, let's take the second point first, which is, is, is it for you, is it a private account? So that's very, very interesting, because it's evident that he made notes, and afterwards he wrote up his journal from the notes. And we know that because at one point he says he couldn't write anymore because his notes had been stolen. He doesn't tell us whether he ever found those notes back again. The journal was carefully composed, I would say, for himself. And at the same time, he was writing letters about the same events to his parents, for example, and other people. So he was very conscious of different readerships for what he wrote. And on one occasion, he writes to his parents that nothing whatsoever that he wrote to them was to be published or shown to anybody else and so as we read these journals we're wondering what secrets are hidden in the pages but it's amazing isn't it george washington heard he's a man who lives to his late 30s and is in china at this pivotal point he's witnessing this seminal battle and what also interested me about this battle as i say is it's very visual what's going on the level of suffering the level of volume and light from the gunfire and the fact that these men are getting onto the seafront and it's only then that the guns are let loose and just mow them down at one point but also as they're climbing these walls and few of them are making it these ladders are breaking they're falling away and what i found very interesting is that george washington heard at that point goes into very much this military aspects of this battle in the sense that he said the knowledge of the guns that the Chinese supposedly have and the fact that other voices are heard yes. which gives the impression that there's probably also Russian input. Yes, and also English input. Somebody said they heard an English voice saying why the devil don't you bring the powder up? George does say he doesn't know whether it was the influence of the imagination that made somebody think they heard that but he did say that he tended to believe that there were other people there because the knowledge of the weaponry shown by the Chinese was quite expert. It could have been also mercenaries. Yes, and he, he suggested runaway soldiers. The Nimrod and the gunboats were firing shot and shell and rockets to protect the stormers and cover their landing. The red sun was just going down behind the middle fort as they landed and it was a wild looking sight. The whistling of the small balls the fierce roar of the heavy ones, and the bursting of the shell and rockets made the little Toewon tremble all over. A great many shots struck all about the Toei, but not one hit the boat itself. 
One shot passed between the awning of the deck between Mr. Ward and myself and fell into the water within 10 or 13 feet of her counter, and a great many fell between us and the Frenchman, who was anchored on her right. The men who succeeded in getting to the walls tried to scale them with ladders, but the ladders broke and they found there was no safety but in flight. Captains Comerell of the Nimrod and the Heath of the Assistants told me that when they were at the foot of the walls, they had to lie close in under them and as soon as a head was seen, the Chinese sent a bullet through it. That the Chinese were armed with real many rifles, and were large men wearing fur caps. Captain Camarell, who was in the Crimea, says he repeatedly heard the Russian word for powder cried within the walls, and a good many of the Marines who were in the same position heard the same word used. Several men declared they heard in good English, Why in the devil don't you pass that powder up? When you read through his journals, he, he does a lot of travel. He's often on boats, but he's also on land. And you get an impression of the discomfort of that era in the sense that he's being rattled around, to put it mildly, in, in some of these carts. He's, you know, in, And you're traveling on non-roads, really, at that time. You would get bruised as you went. But also he describes the living conditions in those days. He's very observant. Uh, you know, he's a good man to write a journal. <laughs> you know, he's not exactly writing nothing happened today. No. And he does show sympathy, I think, for the Chinese. Well, actually, he's, he shows sympathy for everybody. Yeah. So, so going, going back to, to the battle, he witnessed a young man having his head shot off. And he himself was only 22. So he doesn't tell us at the time how that affected him. But when he was back in that area a year later, he talks about feeling very depressed and I infer that that was because he was remembering the scenes of the battle, as you said, the legs and the blood. I don't think he wasn't curious to see legs and blood, but he was curious to see the action, not perhaps taking a account in advance of what that action would involve. So I think he is a very sensitive young man, but also quite a brave and adventurous young man. And I think because this book is from the American point of view, it is a different perspective to what scholars and others have been familiar with for some time. So I very much hope that our American friends will embrace George Washington Farley Heard, paying attention to the fact it is not George Washington. Yes. <laughs> It's interesting, we travel with George in various areas of China, but interestingly enough, when we arrive in Peking on one visit, then Peking, now Beijing, it, it, uh, it's remarkable that uh, some of the people that he's travelling with are seemingly very underwhelmed with Peking. Yes, unfortunately the American legation was not allowed to go out into the city. This wasn't a rule imposed by the Chinese authorities, it seems, but by Mr Ward, the American minister, who thought it wasn't proper for the American legation to visit the city until there had been a formal meeting between him and the emperor. But this formal meeting never took place because the protocol of China at that time was that Mr. Ward should kowtow. And Mr. Ward was not about to kowtow, particularly when he was told that the Chinese regarded the emperor as a god and that therefore performance of the kowtow was a religious ceremony. So a good Protestant American couldn't possibly do this. And so the meeting between the minister and the emperor never took place. The members of the legation never went into the city. And one of the 
servants, I suppose it was, who wasn't subject to that prohibition, it seems, did go out and reported back that uh, Beijing wasn't much of a place. <laughs> I'm talking with Tillian Bickley, who has written any number of books, actually, on 19th century Hong Kong. This is Through American Eyes, the Journals of George Washington, Farley Heard, which Gillian has edited. And uh, in terms of this young man, he dies at the age of only just 38 from dropsy. In this book, Through American Eyes, you provide a, a window onto a certain period, a very pivotal part of Chinese history, having to deal with these other countries coming in. Yeah, through these journals, um, you show how China is relating with America and Britain and the wars that ensue and also these commercial interests. But what are you hoping that the reader of these journals takes away with them? I'm particularly interested in the personality of the writer of the journals because he comes over as a very attractive, sensitive, courteous young man who could empathise with people from all sorts of backgrounds, different nationalities, different ranks of society. He writes very well. He's quite a cultured young man. He quotes from Byron, Dickens, Coleridge. We don't necessarily expect to find that in the writings of a trader on the China coast at this particular time of history. So I think I think it's his personality that I particularly find interesting. But of course, we learn history through what he writes and through his eyes. And it's most interesting that he records that the villagers that they encountered on the way to Beijing said they had never heard of America before. And some of the villagers were quite protective towards these people because on one occasion when they landed trying to send the message that the American delegation was in China and they wanted to go to Beijing, they wanted to convey a message and they were told by the villagers, run! <laughs> There's thousands of soldiers and somebody has just sent a message to them telling them that you're here, run back to your ships! which they did. So it's most interesting that the locals were friendly towards these foreigners and they didn't, they didn't want them to be murdered, massacred, killed by the Mongol army. My thanks to Gillian Bickley, editor of Through American Eyes, the journals of George Washington Farley Heard, published by Proverse Hong Kong. Thanks also to artist Eric Niebuhr for voicing the battle account. During our interview, Gillian and I mulled George's curly handwriting and what writing implement he may have been using, and even when the fountain pen might have been invented. So now for a new and intermittent segment on Hong Kong heritage. Are you ready, Todd? When did that get invented? Thank you. While a student in Paris, Romanian Petrash Poenaru invented the fountain pen, which the French government patented in May 1827. The pen had a barrel made from a large swan quill. Fountain pen patents and production then increased in the 1850s.
And then Lewis Edson Waterman founded his company in New York in 1883 with the invention of a new feeder. He used the capillarity principle, which allowed air to induce a steady and even flow of ink. He worked on his invention for 10 years before placing it on the market. Waterman got a patent for his new fountain pens in 1884. And on with the programme. On a recent trip to the UK, I met up with Ruth Kerr, the community engagement officer for the Ealing Tide Mill experience in the south of England, where flour has been milled for the past 900 years. I'll be returning to the story of the mill as a heritage model in a later programme. Wearing another hat, Ruth Kerr also does another form of community engagement with items from past years as she explained to me. I deliver what I call object-inspired reminiscence. A lot of people working in museums do this. I started doing it working in a museum earlier in my career and I've now sort of built up my own collection and I do it a little bit freelance. So object-inspired reminiscence is about taking objects from within living memory and just using them as memory triggers. There are lots of different types of reminiscence. Some people deliver drama reminiscence, some people deliver writing reminiscence, creative writing reminiscence. Because I'm a museum bard, I I always use museum objects that's sort of where my experience of reminiscence has come from so I'll take my collection into care homes and so with elderly people absolutely yeah yeah with elderly people often I really try hard to encourage the care homes to do something on a Saturday when families are going to be in visiting their older relative because it's great to do reminiscence with a mix of age ranges because it, it just gets a great conversation going between older and younger people. So tell me about some of those objects. Well the, the sort of objects that I've collected that I use some of them I've bought over the years, some of them I've inherited over the years, so things like 1950s radios, seaside souvenirs from the past, from you know seaside towns toys, toys from the past. I've got a number of old dolls that were my mum's that I take into care homes. Even just things like tea sets and little milk jugs with those little crocheted sort of lacy type covers with the beads on the end to stop the flies getting in the milk. Things like that that we don't necessarily use today. Things with smells, I use smells quite a bit so I have smell jars of different types of tea, loose tea that you get a really strong smell from. Furniture polish, old style furniture polish is another really strong one because smell is so rooted into memory for us. They're literally memory joggers. One of my best objects is a, it's a toy vacuum cleaner, it's a toy hoover vacuum cleaner. Um, it's not very big, it was made in the probably late 1950s, but it's an exact toy of a 1950s Hoover vacuum cleaner, <laughs> one that most people remember having themselves. So that's a great one. Everybody's seen the vacuum cleaner in the house when they were growing up or when they were still living at home. So I take them in and they're literally memory joggers. The idea is that I don't do much talking at all. The idea is that these are memory joggers and people, we hold them. Touch is a really, really important sense for us, more important than really we've ever understood. It, can, it, it continues to be important throughout our lives. It helps ground us, helps connect us to everything around us. So touching those objects from the past is quite an important thing. So they hold those objects and share stories and share memories and we just have discussions. You must really see some real sparks happening, you know, that people suddenly become very interested and also are suddenly transported 
to another time in their lives, a much younger, perhaps more vibrant time of their life. Absolutely, yeah. You know, you, you might be sitting talking to a lady who's in her 90s who tells you that she was the first woman to work in an engineering firm. She starts telling you about her life working as the only woman in a male-dominated environment in the past, which is, you know, she, that lady's a pioneer for her day. But you wouldn't think that, looking at a little old lady sitting in a chair. It's, it's a really good eye-opener and a really good reminder of the importance of everyone who's come before us to get where we are now. Ruth Kerr there, the Community Engagement Officer for the Ealing Tide Mill Experience in the south of England, talking about her heritage work with the residents of elderly care homes. I think it's a lovely idea, and I wonder if it's also conducted here in Hong Kong. Well, it was a sad and shocking sight to see the iconic Cathedral of Notre Dame on fire in Paris this week. In next week's Hong Kong Heritage Programme, I talk with fire investigation specialist David Townsend about the challenges that heritage buildings present and how they can be protected from fire. Churches have a very high open space on the inside. You cannot pitch a ladder in that space. You have to get up there through the existing very narrow spiral stairs and carry gear up. So the fire must be prevented or contained and again we can't contain it's a big open space in cathedrals etc. Thanks for listening and join me next week on Hong Kong Heritage.